Dear friends, in Jesus Christ, during these Wednesdays of Lent here in 2023, we are on a journey with Jesus as we take his final steps. So all the different sermons we're taking a look at, these are parts in the Bible that come very close to the time when he gave his life to take away our sins. As we think about his final steps, what was he doing? These were the final steps for him to live as our perfect substitute. God requires perfection. None of us can even come close, so Jesus does that for us in our place. Also, too, his final steps to complete his teaching and miracle ministry. He taught radical things. How should people know that these teachings were from God by the powerful miracles that God the Father was working through Jesus? Also, too, thinking about his final steps to lay down his life in order to open the way to God the Father. Think about God the Father up here, us down here, and this giant barrier of sin in the middle, and no one could ever, ever get from us to God. So what had to happen? God the Father had to take action from his end, send his son to remove the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and now through him, through his finished work, the way has been made. In the sermon today, we are less than one week before Good Friday, and Jesus' steps have led him to a dinner celebration at the home of Lazarus and also his sisters, Mary and Martha. We are in John chapter 12, and picking up in verse 1, we come to what I'm calling here the setting of this particular situation. The Bible says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That was our sermon last Wednesday, if you recall. So the Bible says, they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. What does that give us an indication about Lazarus? It wasn't like, oh, Jesus raised him back to life, but yet he's weak and he's sick and he's in bed. No, he is alive. He is healthy. He's there at the dinner table. So just giving us a little bit of a glimpse as to how healthy he was after Jesus raised him to life. I want to go through a number of different things here. First of all, thinking about the day that we're talking about, the day is Saturday, so it's a Saturday right before that very first Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And then thinking about the location. So they are in Bethany. Bethany is located about two miles mostly east, but a little bit southeast of Jerusalem. And that was the home where Lazarus and his two sisters lived, Mary and Martha. And then thinking about the relationship they had. Now, Jesus was certainly friends with Lazarus and his sisters. However, though, can you imagine how much deeper that friendship became after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Oh, my goodness, just such a close-knit relationship with them. 
And then coming to the meal preparation, we have to think about this a little bit now. So with the meal preparation, of course, they're resting on the Sabbath. No work on the Sabbath. The Old Testament is clear about that. So they are together on the Sabbath, but they are together and they are resting. And maybe they're even watching the sun going down and down and down. And the moment that that sun went below the horizon, what did that mean for the Jews? That meant that they had transitioned from Saturday into Sunday. So as soon as the sun went down, you can imagine that Martha, she's springing to her feet, she's going into the kitchen, and she's preparing this beautiful meal for Jesus. So they didn't violate the Sabbath, but they waited until it was over, and then they began the meal preparation, so probably eating a little bit later in the evening by the time the meal was prepared. And who was the server of the meal? Well, think about the other occasion where Jesus ended up going to the home of Mary and Martha. Remember, Mary seated at his feet and taking everything in. Martha, she's out in the kitchen, so busy with everything, kind of upset that her sister wasn't helping her more. Well, we have a similar thing here. Martha did the serving, the Bible tells us. Coming to the second part here, we come to the anointing. So we're picking up in verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and given to poor people. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer or steal from what was put into it. That's what was going on there in that house, like I said, right before Palm Sunday. Let's look at a number of things here regarding the anointing. First of all, with the perfume. I learned from Dr. Kretzman, he noted it was a very precious nard made from myrrh, and that comes from the juice of the Arabian myrtle. Now, that doesn't mean much to me, but for people who know about perfume, maybe they would understand that a little bit better. But it was a very good-smelling perfume, very expensive, very costly. We know that even from the Bible text. And then to think about the anointing, well, let's jump back to the Old Testament for a moment. So we know that God called Samuel to anoint Saul to be the first king of Israel. When he turned away from God, then God contacted Samuel again and said, go and anoint David to be the next king of Israel. How were they anointed? They were both anointed by Samuel pouring oil on their heads. And then let's go ahead a little bit further and think about God the Father anointing Jesus. So Jesus was baptized, the Bible tells us. He came up out of the river. And then right after that, God the Father anointed him he anointed him not with oil, but he anointed him with the Holy Spirit. 
the Bible does refer to the Holy Spirit as the oil of joy. So when God the Father anointed his son, what did that mean for Jesus? That is when he officially became the Messiah, the Christ, and both of those words mean the anointed one. So we have a little bit of a similar thing here. Mary, she is anointing the feet of Jesus with this very expensive perfume, and then she is drying it with her hair. She was doing something very unusual, but very special, but it doesn't seem that anyone other than Jesus quite understood what was going on, but Jesus knew and Jesus really appreciated what she did. We'll come to that. What about the smell of this perfume? Thinking about the smell, I read some in Dr. Kretzmann and then I had to consult Kathy on the normal use of perfume. I didn't know about that, so I had to ask her. I said, well, you have this size perfume bottle, and it has 3.4 ounces of perfume in it. How many times do you think you could use that perfume in that one bottle? And we estimated that maybe 100 times she could use that perfume in that bottle because you're only using a small amount each time. And then when we take a look at how much perfume that Mary was applying to Jesus, it was a, a container that would be about three times the size of that bottle of perfume that Kathy has. So putting that all together, Mary may have poured perfume, anointed Jesus with perfume that would have been about 300 times the normal amount of perfume that you would put on yourself. 300 times. So it was an awful lot of perfume. What was the result? A very strong and beautiful fragrance filling the entire house. Now you talk about being around someone, maybe they have strong perfume. Now if you like it, you might enjoy that. If you don't care for that kind of perfume, you might be like, oh, that's overpowering. But keep in mind, this is very expensive, very wonderful perfume, and oh my goodness, it was like so, so much perfume. What about the value of it? I was surprised when I looked into this. I hadn't looked into this over all the years I've been a pastor. I never took a look at this before. But the Bible tells us, though, that the value of the perfume was equivalent to 300 denarii. What is a denarius? That's the amount of money that you would pay a person for working an entire day. So we're talking here the perfume being valued at the wage for working 300 days. Now, we're not thinking so much about the value back then, but think today, though. Now, even people who are uh, working at McDonald's, they're making pretty good money today. So at a very conservative figure, we could say a person could work today and make $150 in a day. Well, what happens when we multiply that times 300, we come up with that perfume today being valued at about $45,000. So we shouldn't be surprised at the shock when she takes this amount of perfume and uses it on Jesus to anoint him. 
What was the response of the disciples? Well, we don't have it in the Gospel of John here, but we do over in Matthew. So let me share that with you. Over in Matthew, he wrote, regarding this occasion, he wrote, the disciples were indignant. That means they were righteously angry. That's what that means. The disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? So it wasn't just Judas Iscariot that was thinking, this is not a good idea. Even the other disciples were thinking, this is a wasteful thing. Now, it's good for people to be frugal. As Christians, I think that's a, a good way to be, to be frugal. And especially for those who don't have much money, they should be especially frugal. They shouldn't worry. They should trust in God. God will provide their needs. But it's good to be frugal. However, though, it's also good to be overly generous at times when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ. See, probably Lazarus, Martha, and Mary probably lived very frugal lives, but they saved up. They were able to have the perfume. And this is like one of the most special occasions of their entire life. And now they have the opportunity to do something very extravagant for Jesus, and Mary did it. Reminds me a little bit of a story I heard one time. It deals with another congregation, but maybe the pastor was telling me, I can't remember now, but he said they had an older couple in the congregation, and they were like, they just seemed like they were very poor people. They would wear clothes that were probably like decades outdated. And, you know, it, it just, you could tell they, they just didn't seem to have much money. But when they died, though, I think they gave like a couple hundred thousand dollars to the church. So they had this money, but they were living very frugal lives, and they decided they wanted to do something significant, so they gave all this money to the church, and people were like so surprised. They had no idea that they had that kind of money saved up. When we think about our Savior, he has done everything for us. So isn't it right sometimes that we do something extreme and radical for him? But then we come here to what I'm calling the hypocritical complaint. So when I say hypocritical, it's a complaint that sounds legitimate coming out, but it's, it's not in connection with what's going on in the heart. So Judas Iscariot, he acted like he cared about the poor, but he really didn't. John helped us understand that his true intention was for that perfume to be sold, the money to be put into the money bag, which Judas carried. And then whenever he needed extra money, he could take money out of there. And of course, if you have a lot of money in there, that would be easier for him to take larger amounts out. And of course, are they doing like an audit of the money bag? Certainly not. Judas is completely trusted and no one has any idea that this money is being taken out of the bag. I have a thought here I want to share from Dr. Kretzman on, on Judas. Some people wonder about this, and I thought the way he wrote this, it was pretty instructive. Dr. Kretzman wrote, Judas undoubtedly had been a simple believer in Christ when first he was called to join the little band of disciples. But the temptations connected with the office which was entrusted to him 
proved too much for his endurance. His love of money, his covetousness came to the front. He began to steal and faith fled from his heart. We don't know for certain if that's all true or not, but it makes some sense so. Isn't it so unusual that Judas was there right from the beginning, he heard every teaching, he saw every miracle, and yet in the end, he betrays our Savior. Now, not at all do I believe that God caused him to do that. However, though God, of course, knew by God's divine foreknowledge, he knew all that was coming. He knew Judas would do it, but he didn't make him do it. And I believe that we're when they're in the upper room eating the Last Supper, Jesus is even calling Judas to repent right before he makes a final decision. Yes, I'm going to go through with it. And then Satan enters into him, and then he does go through with his plot to betray our Savior. Coming to a little bit, a little bit of a recap here before I finish the sermon. So we've had this situation occur in the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And there's a difference of opinion here. So Mary has one idea, the disciples have another idea, and then Judas has another idea. So who is right? Who is wrong? What's going on here? Now we come to what I'm calling the proper perspective. The Bible says, therefore, Jesus said, let Mary alone so that she may keep this perfume for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. We understand, because we're looking back on this, we understand Jesus had a very short time to live. The cross was coming very close. Now, for Jesus, he understood that. His disciples, they seem to be blinded to that. They just didn't get it. Even if we go to 40 days after his resurrection and we think about the conversation there in Acts chapter 1, the disciples still didn't get it in a sense. Finally, they did on the day of Pentecost. But here, though, it seems that Mary understood and yet the others did not. Think about what Mary was doing, anointing the body of Jesus, and then think how not too much in the past, their own brother Lazarus had died, probably in that house, and probably in that house, they probably anointed him right there, and they prepared him for burial. So this is kind of a parallel as they prepared Lazarus for the tomb, now here is Mary preparing Jesus for the tomb. Jesus' disciples, they should have understood better than Mary, but they didn't. Mary understood. She took action that was very appropriate. She took action that was very generous. She took action that was very loving. Think about us. What's going on? Here we are alive, but our lives are certainly ebbing toward the day when we will die. Or they're ebbing toward the day when Christ will return. We don't know which will come first, but one or the other. Well, I thought about this question. What significant thing is God calling you to do to bring him glory? 
Now, as you think about that question, think about this radical thing that Mary did. She did it, it was right, it was good, it was amazing, but people didn't like that she did it. People didn't understand that she did it, but yet she did it anyway. So I asked the question again, what significant thing is God calling you to do? Maybe people won't understand it. Maybe they won't like it. But is it something that would really bring glory to our great God? This is something to think about, something to pray about, something to ponder. When God shows us what that thing is and we do it, is that going to bring us great joy? Are we going to be so glad that on the day Jesus comes or on the day we die, are we going to be so glad that we did that? By all means. I encourage you to give that some serious thought. Going further here, I come to what I call the spectacle. So picking up in verse 9, the Bible says, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there, was there at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Lazarus had become kind of a spectacle, if you will. Can you think about going to the fair many years ago, decades ago, and they'd have some kind of a tent, and you could go in there and see different, what you might call spectacles. You could see the cow with five legs, or you could see the woman with a beard, or you could see these various spectacles, if you will. Well, it seems that when we think about Lazarus, he became this spectacle. People were drawn to him. So think about him. Here he is alive and well, and then he becomes sick, then he is dead, then he is entombed, and it kind of seems that that's it, and then we enter the Son of God. And then we enter God the Father working through the Son who can do all things. And then he is alive and he is healthy and this is amazing. So people are coming. They want to see this man who was dead and now he is alive. Well, the unfortunate part here is that they wanted to see the miracle recipient more than they wanted to see the miracle worker. I've said something that maybe we could parallel to that. You know how I've said, we are down here, the gifts that God gives to us are here, and God the Father, the giver of every perfect gift, is up here. So oftentimes, when we look up, we're all consumed by the gifts God has given, and we forget about the giver of the gift. Here are these people. The people are here. They're coming to see Lazarus, but they're not focused on Jesus, the miracle worker. They are focused on Lazarus, the recipient of the great miracle. Not a good thing. Let's make sure we have our focus in the proper place. And then finally, coming to the end here, we come to the plan to murder. It's a shocking thing. In verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Why? 
because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So when it says the Jews were going away, they were going away from following the Jewish leaders, and instead they were following Jesus. And why were they doing that? One of the big reasons is because God worked through Jesus to take this man who was dead and entombed and bring him back to life. He's a walking miracle. He's a walking billboard pointing to Jesus. So they had to get rid of Lazarus, and they had to get rid of Jesus too. Isn't it such foolishness? Isn't it so sad what they decided to do? I want to conclude the sermon today with another quote from Dr. Kretzman. He wrote, This living witness, talking about Lazarus, this living witness was a powerful testimony for the almighty power of Jesus and might thus become the reason why many people might come to faith in Christ. This must be pre prevented at all costs. And so the chief priests consulted about the matter and made the monstrous proposal, the cold-blooded resolution to commit murder, to put the innocent Lazarus to death. What a sad thing. Let us pray. Dearest Jesus, even though many hated you, amazingly, you still did everything necessary for every person to pay the full penalty to open heaven. Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to understand your great love, but we thank you so much for it. Even today, as many seem to be going their own way and doing their own thing and not thinking about all that you have done for our salvation, we pray that somehow, some way, in a powerful radical, effective manner, you would get people's attention and lead them to repent before it is too late. In your holy name we pray. Amen.